Good evening. The Senate passes a $3.5 trillion 10-year budget. It's still a long way to be implemented. Kathy Hochul makes her debut. In two weeks, she'll become New York's first woman governor. The defeat of America in Afghanistan and a political roller coaster over jobs for women on the Lower East Side. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. Last night, the United States Senate approved the budget resolution outlining Democrats' 10-year plan for transforming the government, boosting low-income people, and slowing the planet's ominously warming temperatures. The $3.5 trillion measure squeaked by on a strictly party-line vote, 49 to 50. Mr. Sanders. Mr. Sass. Mr. Schatz. The yeas are 50. The nays are 49. And the concurrent resolution, as amended, is agreed to. And President Joe Biden took a victory lap, his second win after earlier passing a half-trillion-dollar new spending infrastructure bill. Half a trillion dollars in new spending, half a trillion dollars in spending that already was earmarked earlier this week. That bill passed with the support of some Republicans. President Joe Biden. So here's where we stand. Jobs are up and monthly price increases have come down. Economic growth is up the fastest in 40 years and unemployment is coming down. So I would argue our the Biden economic plan is working. It's a result of our strategy to get shots in arms, grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And it's a result of the grit and determination and really hard work of the American people. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. We still have a long road to travel. It's as if we uh, caught a pass, a nice long pass at midfield, but we still have 50 yards to go before we score a touchdown. But it's still good to make that, make that pass and make that advance. Democrats are renewing their push to enact a voting rights bill, pledging to make it the first order of business when the Senate returns in the fall. The measure blocked from debate by a Republican filibuster since June. Liberal activists have advocated for the elimination of the filibuster, but some Democrats, including Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona, have rejected the approach, denying Democrats the vote they need. In related news... The Speaker of the Texas House signed civil arrest warrants for 52 absent Democrats last night, setting in motion the potential roundup of lawmakers who've avoided the Capitol in order to stymie a GOP elections bill they say is meant to disenfranchise non-white Texans. At least two dozen House Democrats have stayed in Washington, D.C., where 57 of them camped out for all or most of a month to run out the clock on Abbott's first special session. During their first During their self-imposed exile in Washington, the Texas Democrats have lobbied the White House and potential swing votes in the U.S. Senate for federal voting rights bills. The Texas attorney general says he has the legal power to use force to bring in the wayward legislators. Incoming New York Governor Kathy Hochul held her first media event after Governor Andrew Cuomo announced his resignation. Linda Perry reports. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul began her news conference to New Yorkers and the press by saying she's prepared to take over from Andrew Cuomo. I've already spoken with Senate Majority Leader Andre Stewart-Cousins, Speaker Carl Heastie, labor, business, faith leaders, other state elected officials, as well as our tri-state governors. 
I look forward to working with each and every one of them and all of you to build on the progress that we've already started. Hochul says she'll continue meetings with current and potential cabinet officials and build out her senior staff and that she has many names in mind for the appointment of a new lieutenant governor. Currently, we're considering a number of individuals. The fortunate thing for me is that I've spent so much time in seven years uh, getting to know many elected officials and community leaders personally uh, at a friendly level. Uh, so I understand who they are. So th- it'll be someone who is no stranger to me but also someone that will carry on the vision of my administration, which is to continue these strongly progressive policies to take this state forward, to get us out of COVID as soon as possible, and to rebuild back this great state of New York. And what about the trust factor? Hochul says she supports many of the administration's policies, and even though she was in the Cuomo administration, there hasn't been any close connection between her and the governor. Many people have supported the policies of the Cuomo administration. There is a strong legacy of accomplishment. I was out there fighting in the streets to raise the minimum wage. I was out there fighting for paid family leave. I've been the champion of policies to eradicate the specter of heroin and opioid abuse, something that has touched my family personally. Child care issues. I've been out there making the announcements on affordable housing, clean energy, economic development. So that will continue. Those policies will continue and even be more enhanced. But re- with respect to the particular environment and the reputation of the, the, pr- of the current administration, I think it's pretty clear that, and it's no secret, that we have not been close and I've not been associated with that. So I know the job. I fought for the same policies. That's why I'm more prepared than anyone could possibly be for this position. The lieutenant governor says people will soon learn that her style is to listen first and then take action. So in 13 days... I will officially become the 57th governor of the state of New York. And shortly thereafter, I look forward to delivering an address to all New Yorkers to lay out my vision for the great state of New York. But make no mistake, our work has already begun. And I know this year and a half has been so challenging for families and businesses across our state. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's getting any easier. The Delta variant is still raging, and it's going to take all of us to defeat it. Our children are heading back to school soon. There's a lot of anxiety from the moms and dads I speak to, and the teachers as well. It's going to take all of us working together to keep our children safe, our teachers safe, and anyone who works in a school safe. Small businesses are just starting to bounce back into an uncertain world. We need to reassure them that they'll be okay. And our workers are once again debating whether they should even go back to their jobs, go back to their offices, go back to their factories. Is it safe enough? But I know New Yorkers, they are hardwired to persevere and to prevail. And Hochul makes a promise that she will fight like hell for New Yorkers every single day. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. In related news, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle in Albany believe the impeachment investigation into Governor Cuomo should continue despite his resignation. An ongoing probe not only covers the sex misconduct claims, but also allegations the Cuomo administration obscured the true number of COVID deaths in nursing homes, the governor's $5 million book deal, and the mishandling of construction contracts on the Mario Cuomo Bridge. The last New York governor to be impeached back in 1908 was William Seltzer. 
He won an assembly seat after being removed from office. A spokeswoman, though, for the Albany County District Attorney's Office said that a criminal inquiry into conduct in our jurisdiction remains open and pending. And across the pond, prosecutors for the United States Department of Justice won permission at a court hearing today in London to challenge the medical evidence blocking their extradition request for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. He faces a possible lifetime in prison on charges of espionage against the United States. Rebecca Miles has been following the proceedings and files this report. Two judges of the Royal Courts of Justice in London on Wednesday sided with the United States to allow it to appeal the prior judgment in January that Julian Assange was too high a risk of suicide to be extradited to the United States. The U.S. had been granted the right to appeal the extradition request decision on July 5th, but not on the grounds of Assange's health. That was reversed today. Counsel for the U.S., Claire Dobbin QC, argued Assange, whom she claimed orchestrated one of the largest thefts of data in history, does not meet the threshold of being so ill that he cannot resist harming himself. She argued that Assange's condition did not come close to being that of that nature, and he has not made serious attempts on his life before. District Court Judge Vanessa Baritza ruled in January that Assange was likely to kill himself if held under harsh U.S. prison conditions. The U.S. government is appealing. Dobbin also tried to discredit evidence given during the extradition trial by arguing the neuropsychiatrist expert for the defense, Professor Michael Copperman, had concealed Assange had fathered two children when he sought sanctuary at the Ecuadorian embassy in London and was therefore willing to mislead and ignored his duty to the court as an expert witness. Edward Fitzgerald for the defense reminded the court that evidence in the Spanish case against the company UC Global, which spied on Assange inside the Ecuadorian embassy for a U.S. intelligence agency, revealed that agents had stolen the diaper of one of Assange's children to get the DNA to prove he was the father. They also discussed poisoning or kidnapping Assange. Assange, wearing a dark face mask, listened by video link from the high-security prison Belmarsh, where it has been detained since 2019. U.S. prosecutors have indicted Assange on 17 espionage charges and one count of computer misuse over WikiLeaks' publication of thousands of leaked military and diplomatic documents a decade ago, the charges carrying a maximum sentence of 175 years in prison. The case continues, and a full appeal hearing was scheduled for October 27. Rebecca Miles, WBAI Pacifica Radio, New York. Assange is charged with 18 federal crimes, including conspiring to obtain and release hundreds of thousands of pages of top-secret government's documents. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. In more world news, the Taliban seized the ninth provincial capital in Afghanistan yesterday. The cities have been the scene of heavy clashes in recent weeks as government security forces continued heavy fighting to prevent Taliban from advancing. Security situation in the war-torn country has deteriorated as Taliban militants continue uh, their battles with the government and have been gaining ground since the drawdown of U.S. troops. Thousands of displaced families arrived from the northern region 
are living in public parks and open spaces in the national capital of Kabul, still under Afghan government control. Nearly 360,000 people have been forcibly displaced by the current conflict, and about 5 million people have been displaced since 2012. Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, has been trying to broker alliances with warlords opposed to the Taliban. He was in the northern city of Mazar-e-Sharif today, meeting with leaders in that area. The United States is poised to totally pull out its military forces by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks in New York, the Pentagon, and in the skies, an attack that killed 2,977 people. The U.S. government maintains that if the Taliban takes over by force, they will become international pariahs. State Department Press Secretary Ned Price. Just our contention that uh, any government that comes to power in Afghanistan at the barrel of a gun will lack international support and international legitimacy. It is, in fact, uh, the consensus. Ambassador Khalilzad is currently in Doha. He is there to advance a collective international response to what can only be termed as a rapidly deteriorating security situation. In order for us and for our allies and partners to be able to recognize any future government of Afghanistan and to provide assistance to it, it must emerge from a political settlement that meets five criteria. First, it must be inclusive. Second, it must respect the rights of all Afghans, including women and minorities. Third, it allows the Afghan people to have a say in choosing their leaders. Fourth, it must prevent Afghan soil from being used to threaten the United States uh, and its allies and partners. And fifth and finally, it must respect its, its commitments in terms of international law and international humanitarian law. And that's State Department Press Secretary Ned Price. A senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, Matthew Ho served as a U.S. Marine officer in Afghanistan before resigning his commission in protest of the war. He says America's looming loss in Afghanistan, one of a series of defeats for the nation since the Vietnam War, leaves only one group of sure winners, defense contractors. Colonel over there who is like a mentor to me, but he said to me one time, he said, Matt, if anyone ever figures out that the American way of war is just to waste more, we're going to always be defeated. This was early in Iraq, right? And certainly we've seen that the United States has been defeated in these wars. They were defeated, they were defeated in the Vietnam, as well as various proxy conflicts that throughout the Cold War. And now that seem to be wars without end. In these types of war, you cannot underestimate the importance of will in terms of what motivates people to fight and why they are fighting. When you're talking about people fighting for what they regard as their homes, their own people, their own culture, people fight much more effectively than people who are fighting for reasons that are very often specious. You saw young American men and women over to Afghanistan, and they find that what they're sent there for was not what they were told, that these people in Afghanistan have never even heard about 9-11, let alone or have any thoughts about international terrorism. So that's a lot of it. The another part of it, American warfare, this goes back to before the founding of the United States, this notion of divide and conquer, pitting one Native American tribe against another Native American tribe. And that's the way American warfare has been for centuries in these colonial or imperial type wars, whether they be in Central America, whether they be in Asia, throughout the Middle East, pitting one group against the other in an attempt to divide and conquer. When you do that, 
you find that people's backs are, again, really up against the wall and they fight harder. There's a lot of individual mendacity and lying that went on, just a hubris that allowed general after general to go to the, to the Afghan war and say, victory is just around the corner. We're making progress. By this time next year, the war will be over. What's going on in Afghanistan that it attracts the great powers and yet repels them so effectively, even though it's one of the poorest countries in the world? It's at a crossroads, right? It's in that point in Central Asia on the center of our map, center of our world. The great tragedy of it is that these wars have had almost nothing to do with the Afghan people themselves. The United States war in Afghanistan, whether it be the proxy war during the Cold War against the Soviets, had nothing to do with Afghanistan, had everything to just do with simply with the Soviet Union. And then these last 20 years, the United States' direct military involvement in Afghanistan has had everything to do with an organization like al-Qaeda, which is ephemeral, exists all around the world, doesn't have a base so to speak. The whole notion of like the 9-11 hijackers, none of them were Afghan. Yeah, they were in Afghanistan for a couple months, but they spent almost all of their time. The, the leaders of the plot were from Germany. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the head of the plot, right? I mean, he spent almost all his time in Pakistan. The United States eventually found and killed bin Laden in Pakistan. There was nothing that really tied the 9-11 attack to Afghanistan other than the fact that that's just basically where Osama bin Laden himself and some of his group were hiding out. And we had hijackers here in the U.S. for 18 months before the attacks. Majority of Afghans are living subsistence life. That's what we have seen these last couple of months, the collapse of the Afghan army because of the way it was structured, it was built, because this whole Afghan government that the United States built, propped up, kept in power in Afghanistan, was composed of warlords and drug lords. And that worked its way down throughout the whole system so that it is nothing but a house of cards. Matthew Ho, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, a former U.S. Marine officer who resigned his commission to protest the Afghan war. And closer to home in New York City's Lower East Side, residents battling a city plan to build a multi-billion dollar levee, a giant wall similar to those found in New Orleans and Holland to block storm surges, have been riding a political roller coaster over the past two weeks. Last week, the chief financial officer and chief auditor of city agencies, Comptroller Scott Stringer, rejected the contract for the East Side Coastal Resiliency, or ESCR, project at East River Park, that's along the eastern part of Manhattan, that would close the park for years and cut down a 1,000 trees. Only two companies bid for the job. The winner was IPC Resiliency Partners, a consortium of three companies who were sued by a competitor for allegedly lacking the necessary qualifications for the job. Stringer says, for his part, the contract did not meet New York City requirements for hiring contractors led by women of color. However, within days of Stringer's decision, Mayor de Blasio overruled his controller and okayed the contract. Fanny Ip is a activist with the organization that has been fighting to stop this project. She spoke with WBAI. The final step of the process is to go through Stringer's office, the controller's office, and what they've got to do is this thing called registering the contract. We're not sure what that is exactly. I mean, it could be a press of the button, but basically his office has to go through the contract 
to make sure that everything's up to par. We knew this was going on, so we had this rally at One Center Street urging him not to register or approve the contract. We also wrote him a letter, and then we found out that he rejected it. He rejected the contract based on some issues that he had. The two issues that we know about are the hiring of minority women businesses. They couldn't provide the goal, the city's goal, and I believe that's 30%. And also the other issue was the company, the newly formed joint venture between these three smaller companies. The comptroller rejected the contract on those issues and probably others that we don't know. A few days later, we found out from Stringer's office that the mayor overrode it and the contract has been registered. Isn't there a problem? Two companies, wasn't there a lawsuit by one company against the other? That lawsuit was because being that this plan is just so huge and this magnitude of this plan that's unprecedented, there aren't many companies that were willing to bid on it. Also, there were qualifications for these bidders. One of the reasons this plan is delayed because they kept on delaying the bid date because they had to lower the qualifications. So there were companies that would be able to bid on this project. There were two companies that finally met those qualifications that we know of. And one of them is an established company, a billion-dollar established company. And the other one is a newly formed joint venture that just formed right before the bid. So they basically, it's three small companies that got together, formed a joint venture so they could bid on this project. I thought that lawsuit was going to put a kibosh on this anytime soon, that they couldn't start doing anything until after the lawsuit was settled. That's what we thought, too. But before the judge ruled on the lawsuit, the city moved ahead with the contract anyway. The whole lawsuit was on the basis that this bidder, the one who had the contract now, is not qualified. So you're saying the city so, is just ignoring the lawsuit and going with the company anyway? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, there's almost nobody in politics you can talk to because they all oppose the project. If Stringer could come out with a statement of some sort and explain mm. like what's going on. I would right. think their office would be the people that would know. Has there been any sign of moving construction equipment or anything like that? No, not yet. We have been seeing people that look like engineers going into the park. They did tell us that they are going to start doing surveying in the park. They're going to start doing that. But as far as actual work, I mean, like, they could start ordering supplies. They can start fencing the park. They could start bringing in trailers to use as field offices. So they could start doing those things within the next month or so before the actual bulldozers come in. But that's still work. They still have to go through procurement. So they're saying that that's going to take, like, around two months. But then at the uh, community advisory group meeting the other day, they said it could start next month. Stuff is going to start happening soon in the park. We're also surprised at the fact that none of the major publications are following this. I guess they consider this a local issue. And that's activist Fanny Ip. 
The Comptroller's Office did not respond to WBAI's request for a comment. The embattled ESCR plan calls for East River Park to be buried under 8 to 10 feet of landfill to raise it above the floodplain. The project, which would take at least several years to complete, opponents fear it would drag on years longer, would obliterate almost everything in the 82-year-old park, including a 1,000 mature trees. And finally... New data from the Census Bureau due to be released Thursday will map the scope of that democratic transformation that's overcome America in the last decade. The numbers are expected to show that dozens of counties across 18 states, largely in the South and Southwest, are now less than 50 percent white. And no racial or ethnic group makes up a majority. The non-Hispanic white population expected to shrink for the first census on record. The estimates suggest that about 113 million people, a third of all Americans, now live in a plurality county. Past census data has shown growth in the U.S. driven by immigration, but that's only one of the factors now. Over the past decade, new arrivals from overseas slowed and then virtually disappeared during the pandemic. Instead, birth rates are driving the change. Hispanic and Asian women's share of births has grown this century, while it has declined for white women. Estimates suggest the new numbers may show fewer than half of United States residents under 18 are white, while more than three-quarters of those over 65 are, in fact, Caucasian. And that's from the news for Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. The news was produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.